There we go. Cool. Yeah. Cool. It's Craig. Ugh. I mean, he's, he's kind of reliable at this point. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, he's he's our most reliable source of uh, recording at this point. So, uh, Dave, how was it? Yeah, it was good, man. Um, but I'm not going to talk about it a lot right now because I'm actually going to go over to Jesse's tomorrow and do like a professional. Well, not, I mean, this is pretty professional, but like, I'm going to go to Jesse's and do like a main cast. <laughs> I feel hurt. I know. I, I'm sorry. Damn, Dave. Yeah. I edit your audio week I know. after week after week. I know. You make me sound amazing. Um, no, I'm just going to go. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I should have said that differently. I'm going to go over to Jesse's and we're going to do like a, a, a main cast recording. I think Austin's going to come over. So um, return to the mother cast. Return to the mother cast. Yeah. <laughs> studio. Studio one. Studio alpha. But uh, but yeah, so but what but I but what I did want to tell our listeners, right? So they'll get a little, I guess, sneak peek at this. Um, is I got to meet. Well, I got to meet a lot of people, but one of the people I got to meet um, and talk to, and sit in the room and listen to was uh, John French, and I uh, I was able to catch him in the hall between sessions and um, I asked him a question. It was a very specific question. And it's the same question that I left as homework for our listeners last time. So a little bit of housekeeping here and then we'll get to the good stuff, right? So the housekeeping is um, who is the unspeakable king? And specifically in book eight, what significant reference to the unspeakable king happens. So our listeners should have found the reference on page 28 of book eight. And I'll just read it here because it's, it's so good. It's, it's not very long. So it's the top paragraph on page uh, 128. Other forces took advantage of the Imperium's weakness the unspeakable king would reemerge, as would the psychopathy of Dumash. Zeno's threats banished to the fringes of the galaxy would rear their heads to eke out a corner of the Imperium as their own, and those within cordons of quarantine would look to their skies to see the battleships of the Imperium Gaulors no longer hanging above them. So that's just sort of in reference to what happens during the heresy, right? So the, as the Imperium starts to sort of fall apart, crumble back in on itself, all of these old threats emerge, right? And the Unspeakable King is um, one of the old threats, right? So he's, he, or I guess we don't know, he or she, um, well, King, so I guess he, right? So he was the king of Albia uh, during the Age of Strife, before unification. And he was actually able to defeat the Pan-Pacific Empire. And so he was quite potent. Uh, and if our listeners listened to the last two episodes, uh, they will also know that he was a untouchable. He was, he was a psychic null. 
and it was theorized that he had psychic nulls uh, as part of his sort of bodyguard or elite warrior cadre. So this is the question I asked John French, because I know John and Alan Bly would often collaborate and go way back. But I didn't know specifically if John was part of this operation. And caught John in the hall. And I said, do you mind if I ask you a question? I think you may be the only person left who knows the answer. And he said, yeah, go ahead. He got kind of interested. And I said, who is the unspeakable? And his eyes like lit up, right? And he was like, ah, oh, the unspeakable king. And he's just, he's a pretty cool guy. So he's like, ah, oh, the unspeakable king. He's like one of the tyrants of the age of strife. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, definitely. And uh, he, yeah, so uh, he's like, the unspeakable king is sort of one of those classic Alan Bly creations, right? That's just meant to evoke sort of a, um, you know, just the darkest part of nightmare and um, sort of the, you know, the, the really awful things that, that sort of surfaced during the age of strife. And he said, you know, I don't know if we'll ever go back and unpack that. You know, it was sort of one of these footnotes that we like to leave in, in sort of more atmospherics uh, than anything else. But, uh, but, you know, I feel like I did my job. I planted the seed and uh, I think John's going to go back, think about it, and maybe we'll know more soon. But, uh, but yeah, I think it's cool because, you, you know, the, I think that's such a cliffhanger that The Unspeakable King has been in so many of the black books, uh, starting from the very beginning, book one, right, uh, first mentioned. And then we see the unspeakable King come back in book eight. Like he's mentioned by name as returning to the Imperium, uh, you know, as it, as it sorts to collapse, starts to collapse in on itself. So I hope we, uh, I hope we find out a little bit more and I have a lot more to talk about uh, from the weekender, but I'll save that for, for tomorrow. So, all right. Uh, I think it's all the housekeeping cleaned up. Pat, did we have anything else we needed to talk about? Um, no, I mean, I think that's it. Other than the rest of us are very jealous that you went to the weekender and, you know, I think it's fantastic that John's eyes lit up or at least the way you describe it makes it sound like, you know, he's like, Oh shit, somebody actually read this. <laughs> Yeah, no. And, and so I will, I will say one more thing too. Uh, I was in a session with John and um, Guy Haley and um, Mike Brooks, who just wrote Rites of Passage. Uh, and we were talking, the, the session was called uh, Navigating the Dark Imperium. And during, there was a part during the session, well, there's always a part during the session where they sort of allow the audience to ask questions. And uh, yeah, my question was, uh, how do you, or how did navigators uh, navigate the warp before there was an Astronomicon? And Guy, Guy just says, oh, I answered that in a book that hasn't been released yet. And then uh, I thought that was pretty cool. And 
(laughs) (laughs) sort of alludes to some, some of the things he, he was, he's, he's written about. Um, But then John French, of course, Pat, you know, this goes, well, I wrote the like a 40 K RPG for navigators. Fuck. Yeah, he did. Yeah, exactly. And it was pretty cool um, because I've, we both read that. And this, and, uh, ladies and gentlemen, is why I scour the internet for every copy of the Fantasy Flight books. What was really funny is Mike Brooks um, didn't even know that John French had written that, but he referenced that book during the session. And if I so, had thought about it, I would yeah. have honestly like mailed that to you instead of the book that never came. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, it's that's it's it's all good, man. We'll do it again next time. We'll do it again. Oh, no. Yeah, don't worry. Except next time I'm going to hide in your luggage. Yeah. Just, yeah, you should just come over. It's a good time. Yeah. No, I think that's it for us, though. Um, cool. Yeah. My friends, what lays before you is the myriad knowledge of an unfathomable universe. Join our intrepid remembrancers as they explore the heresy as history. From deep within the farthest reaches of the great library of Tiska, we are the Heresy Grad School. So said the War Master in his wisdom. Go forth, my sons, and illuminate them. Listeners, welcome back to a another awesome episode of Heresy Grad School. We're in, I guess this is part three now of our sisterhood of or sisters of silence coverage, right? Yes, the Anathema Psychana. Yeah, and so I guess we're picking back up around page. If you're following along in your black book, like you do, uh, I think we're starting into one twenty six, essentially. Yep, I think so. So the birth of silence. All right. So guys, last time we talked all about news to me, actually, that uh, conflict on Pentecostes. And today we're going to check out the birth of silence on through to the vow tranquility. All pretty important stuff as far as the creation of the initial sisterhood. So, last time you learned about that huge tithe from 913, which uh, is something I tried to kind of get into today. So, 913 would be a designation of the 13th planet put into compliance by the 9th Expeditionary Fleet. But, try as I might, I cannot find a single reference to, like, who the Ninth Expeditionary Fleet is. We know about a whole other bunch of them, not the Ninth, which I think was a little curious. Might have been intentional, might not. I like to think it was intentional, because uh, the attention to detail across, like, multiple black books has been pretty impressive so far. But, so, anywho, this planet, 913. Allegedly, the initial tithe from 913 is what kind of formed the core of the newly formed Divisio Investigates. So Pentecostes was kind of this sort of trial by fire, possibly, 
and it was really something that put into stark contrast how much uh, a widespread sort of network of untouchables, militant untouchables, mind you, are needed. And um, there's a kind of interesting, not really side note, but kind of side thought here, is that uh, this battle on Pentecostes is something of like a... Uh, I don't know, whatever the uh, version of a you know 30K conspiracy theorist is, uh, it's kind of like this open conspiracy. Pretty sure that's just us, Jason. Yeah, I mean, 50%. We are the 30K conspiracy theorists. All right, let me amend that. Whatever the in-universe version of a conspiracy theorist is. Which Thank may you. be just as bad. Like, I don't... So, uh... What's kind of suspicious to uh, some of the conspiracy theorists of uh, M30, M31 is that this, comparatively, this information on Pentecostes, even a century later, was decently freely available in the histories of the Great Crusade, where everything else about the creation of the Sisters of Silence is wrapped in layer upon layer of misdirection and secrecy. So it's really suspicious that something like this, where they allegedly got started, should be so easily accessible. So it led Lord Militant Luca Colga, writing his histories of notable battles of the Segmentum Solar about a century later, uh, led him to say that this was probably something of an arranged uh, experiment, kind of like a field test of could, over a large scale, could untouchables be weaponized? And maybe, so maybe this was some sort of planet-wide experiment that was more or less a field test for things like this. And Along the same line of thought, there are all sorts of associated conspiracy theories, like uh, some insisting that this was sort of staged, that it was, you know, an obvious, you know, bait thrown out to, you know, kind of dissuade further research. Uh, even four decades into the Great Crusade here, the Divisio Investigatis is now almost synonymous with the Silent Sisterhood. So, along here, it's pretty unique so far as every other uh, militant order in the Imperium put together. So this is, of course, entirely psychic gnolls, all human, all female, uh, thousands and thousands strong. It actually numbers them in the tens of thousands, even more so than custodians. And the scale of this undertaking at just a galaxy-wide span starts to become a little more apparent. So as the Great Crusade rolls on and the domain of the Imperium starts getting larger and larger, this new militant arm of the uh, Divisio Investigatis 
is now operating with like this remorseless efficiency and also it's under this sort of cloak and dagger like veil upon veil of silence and secrecy and it's really something that besides maybe the officio assassinorium but there's such a smaller scale that nothing else in the imperium really works like this anymore now as they get up to speed uh even the original world they supposedly came from 913 there's no such sphere listed in the cartographica imperialis uh its numerical listing is simply missing and it's a blank space and I think just in the same way, we can't really find any reference to the Ninth Expeditionary Fleet. Even this planet cannot find a reference to it. So, the Sisterhood itself, it's an organization, singular reach and secrecy, and it numbers in the tens of thousands, though the exact numbers are never really known. And while it's technically part of the Astrotelepathica, it's really under the direct agency of the Emperor himself. It's kind of like the flip side to the custodians. The Legio custodians uh, carry out the overt efforts of the emperor's will. The sisters carry out more of his secret works and things that need to fly under the radar where something like a custodian would be too much of a hammer. Um, not only are they spread around combat engagements uh, to deal with uh, really potent psychers and what, of course, at the time weren't known at warp incursions, but warp-based imperial entities. Uh, they also crew and command the fleet of black ships now. And this is all done from their headquarters on the Somnus Citadel, where they maintain a really strong position as well as on Terra itself. Now, the Somnus Citadel was handed over for their operations from the older Selenite gene cults, this is on Luna, that used to, you know, harbor there. And in addition, uh, they have the Magden orbital construct where the black ships themselves dock to deliver cargo. Now, this is a little bit of a misnomer because as the Great Tithe rolls in and they're drawing a galaxy's worth of different levels of Psyker in for processing, it's not actually the soul system itself where most of this processing is going on. It's actually done in a undefined number of nearby prohibited star systems uh, that the processing is actually completed in the main, and then only certain parts of that uh, processed group of Psykers actually comes into the soul system itself. Now, uh, the secrecy uh, which covers these processing systems it has so many layers to it, it gets pretty it gets pretty intense. So starting off, uh, none of the planets, however many there are, or the systems themselves are marked in Imperial cartography. Uh, they are not named, they are not designated, they're only known and navigated to as vague and shifting code designations that change constantly. And in these systems, the, uh, the Sisters of Silence are the complete law, 
and they hold sway over whatever numbers, facilities, resources, or whatever they possess. They're essentially their own tiny sovereign domains within the Imperium. Uh, and such is like this terrific shroud of secrecy. It's just the navigators of the black ships themselves that know the actual location of some of these processing worlds and the anchorages of black ships outside of the soul system. Now, what's special about that is not only is it the tiny cadre of uh, navigators from the black ships themselves, every navigator of a black ship leads their entire life in what's called a biome crucible. It's... Um, Think like a 30K version of a bubble, uh, like a medical bubble. And not only do these crucibles seal them inside their entire lives, the crucibles are set to automatically incinerate and destroy everything inside it if the seal is ever breached. So this is kind of the weight of import that the knowledge these navigators carry you know, is placed on. So under no circumstances, anything about these systems getting out past the sisterhood and the emperor himself. So real quick, Jason, because I mean, we went over navigators before, like, is there any, like, I don't think I've ever heard of something like that advanced, at least from a 40k perspective to deal with navigators. I mean, even if you look at, say, a good uh, Black Library book series that that has stuff about like Inquisitor navigators, for instance, um, in the Aramon series. Like he's not in a bubble. He's you know he's got a nice palatial uh, like the the head navigator of the Inquisitor like frigate that that Aramon steals the navigator off of is you know he's not in a bubble, which you'd think he would be if it was in, but like. This is the first time I've ever heard of such, like, just the amount of security seems ridiculous. Well, it might. But then on the other hand, uh, the sisters have never really been compromised. Whereas, you know, Inquisitors are kind of inefficient so far as it goes. Uh you know, they just band together cells of, like, useful people. They get compromised, like, on the regular. True, I mean, yeah. Just think of how many times Ravener and Eisenhorn were betrayed upon, like, the length and breadth of their career. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I guess you're not wrong. <laughs> Completely different ballgame. All right, I gotta I gotta jump in here because Absolutely. there's so much good stuff that that Jason just covered, and um, to make a point, uh, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but the fact that you go from no sisters, no psychic nulls, to tens of thousands within. 40 years or less does beg the question. Um, so I think the Lord Militant who is writing uh, a century later, right? Uh, the notable battles of the Segmentum Solar probably had some justification 
for for writing that. Um, so I think there's two ways this could have happened, and, and I'm going to give you my uh, my hypothesis. Now this is this I cannot back this up anywhere. So this is completely my own guess at what may have happened. So the daughters of the crow, as we know, um, probably had a high pr- pr- proportion of psychics uh, in their uh, regimental makeup. And so you take that dot and then you connect it to 913. Now you could potentially depopulate a planet and get to tens of thousands, I guess, of sisters, but I think it's highly unlikely um, that just that many psychic nulls would, I mean, it's, it's, it's possible that that's what happened. Um, and so then they, yeah. Are we assuming all sisters are psychic nulls? Well, yeah, I mean, they have to be, Pat. Okay. I wasn't sure if they have to be or. Yeah. No, I think that's the whole point, right? Mm -hmm. It's the psychic anathema. (laughs) 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 Silent sisters. The null maidens. I read my notes. Go away. (laughs) (laughs) The null maidens. All right. No, so here's my, here's my hypothesis. And I'm going to support this with a couple facts. So we know that the silent sisters are given the Somnus Citadel and the um, Magden construct, orbital construct. And we also know who else is on Luna, the Selenar gene cult, right? So here's my hypothesis. Um, the Divisio Investigatis finds out it has this resource of uh, psychic nulls. And so what do they do? They take them back to Luna. They have the Selenar clone them, and so they do exactly the same thing as they did with the um, the legions, right? The very first legions were cloned on Luna in the in the secret gene labs, and they just cranked them out, right? That's where Abaddon came from, and that's what they did with the Silent Sisters, and that's why they're on Luna because the Magden orbital construct is there, and the Somnus Citadel is there. So that's how you get from zero silent sisters to fucking tens of thousands crewing black ships in under 40 years. What do you think? I absolutely love that you started that out with, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but (laughs) let me break open this entire shit. Yeah galaxy spanning null production well you can't i mean you just can't get there there's only two ways to get um well i guess there's three one is you depopulate all of 913 and that for whatever reason 913 is an anomaly and it has essentially all psychic nulls right they're just that's what they have maybe they're just all making babies and they make more babies and they're a warrior techno barbarian warrior cult I could see that. Um, now, as the Great Crusade goes on, and the Anathema Sykana and the black ships go out, then they can start to identify um, sort of naturally occurring, you know, psychic nulls like like female um, children that uh, have the pariah uh, gene, and then they can sort of bring them back and, and induct them to the um, the sisterhood, but. I, you just don't, I don't think there's any way you get from like zero to thousands and, 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 a, and a, in an order like the silent sisterhood, that's very, 
regimented, very structured. It's got, I mean, we'll get into this, but, you know, um, thought mark and battle mark and, you know, all of the mimetic code that they have. It's very sophisticated. And that just doesn't happen. Uh, I think there's some some form of psychoindoctrination that goes on. I think that when a silent sister is uh, found and sort of, you know, she goes through a psychoindoctrination process that's similar to um, an Adeptus Astartes, you know, obviously it's not, you know, they're not ripping out and sticking new ones in, but um, I, there's just got to be like an expedited way to train uh, the Silent Sisters. Wait, and, that and- makes me think of something else, though. Because I always wondered, like, you know, I was curious, they kind of, you know, hand wave the all male space marine thing away with, oh, well, the male hormones are the only ones that work with the gene seed or whatever. But, like, maybe that would be a reason why, because we know they're male psychic nulls, like, they're out there. There's one, yeah. um, Eisenhorn. Uh, yeah. Why are all the, why is it the silent sisterhood? Like, why are they all female specifically? It could be females. Um, female gnolls are more stable. I'm kind of curious. Maybe it has something to do with, like, I mean, if they were cloning them. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, because they all look the same, right? They're all really tall, um, sort of uh, from the same genetic descent, right? They're always described as being sort of a techno-barbarian warrior caste that sort of looks like, they, they sort of look like they come from the same place. Um, at least at the very beginning. Now, as, as you go on and things change and evolve, then I think you get more variation. Um, but uh, yeah, I just don't think you get from zero to, you know, tens of thousands within the first 40 years of, of the Great Crusade without doing some uh, some something. So, but uh, that, that That's an excellent point that I didn't even think of until you made it. Thanks, that's man. That's terrific. Yeah, no, it's cool. That's why, I, that's why I love doing this because I think, you know, we, I think we, we like end up asking as many questions as we try to answer, um, which is cool because then I can go back and I feel like the next time I go to Black Library Weekender, find John and be like, "What's really going on, my sister?" And uh, he won't tell me, but he'll be like, "Of, of course, yeah. yeah." And as much as I'd want them to know about us, I'd be worried for them to for for GW to like really know about us, you know. It'd be pretty terrific, though. Be like, Mr. French, you got to tell me. I've done the math. The numbers don't check out. You don't go to tens of thousands <laughs> inside of 40 years, man. They're yeah. running a billion already. Tell me those numbers work. You can't. <laughs> Come in, like, just slightly strung out, you know. <laughs> and he's just like, dude, I'm like 50 books ahead of you. Don't, don't. <laughs> Haven't shaved in a couple of weeks, you know. Drinking too much coffee, but no, it's, it's, no, it's totally true, man. Because, you know, in some of these sessions, especially the ones where I would ask John and Guy, they would just be like, you guys are asking the same questions that we ask when we're sitting and drinking in a pub somewhere. Like, 
these are the questions that we're asking. And it's like, cool, you guys get to answer those questions. And, you know, we just have to wait. But yeah, no, I, I get it. You know, it's, it's awesome. Um, that's why we do this. But uh, hey, one one other thing is we're going to go down the conspiracy rabbit hole. I, I, and, and this sort of ties back, Jason, into um, maybe where these processing facilities are, right? Because we know they're somewhere close to the soul system, but not in the soul system. So they're in the segmentum solar, but they're not um, too close to Terra because you would not want to. Uh, do your all of your processing of of alpha plus uh, level psychers, um close to the most important planet in the galaxy. So this is my theory. I started off this uh, whatever we're, what are we calling this right? Our coverage, I guess. I started off our yeah, coverage our series. Of, um, yeah, our series. Uh, sort of making this bold claim that I I may be able to case for where these are. So again, um, on page 122, sorry, uh, we're talking about uh, Star One, Silent Harbor, and Tayson Astra, which are those sort of code designations believed to be the planetary systems uh, given over to the secure processing of the Great Tithe. Um, so in the Adeptus Custodes 40K Codex um, on page 29. Really, we get a beautiful blowout of the Segmentum Solar, Terra and Luna, the Soul System, Mars and Phobos, Saturn and Titan. Um, so it's a really cool look at some of those planets. Now, in the Segmentum Solar, you have four star keeps that are currently so currently being m41 uh garrisoned by the custodies um so it's prescience oracle maximus talonagus and eerie prime now we know zero about any of these star keeps like we just did we don't know anything about them they don't exist in the lore they don't exist in the codex they don't exist in the black books they're literally just spot map where nobody has shined a light they're just dark places i think they could be some of the old processing facilities of the great tithe um assuming that the silent sisters didn't fully disappear in the ages after you know um reunification the sort of the um you know, scouring the, the basically the Imperium coming back because we know they did eventually, sort of. But I don't think the black ships ever went away. So I think the black ships are still doing their thing. So I think that those could be processing facilities because if anyone is going to be there with the sisters, it's going to be the custodies, right? So, um, and. I don't know what else the custodians are doing out there in these star keeps, uh, ostensibly protecting um, the solar system. But uh, I just don't think we know anything more about that. And if I'm wrong, listeners, please call me out. Uh, tell me what you think uh, is going on at those star keeps because I couldn't find anything on them uh, other than their custodians there. So, 
that's it, guys. That's what I've got for this session. All right, guys. Are we ready uh, to talk about some rules? Yeah. Let's get into some rules. Let's get into, let's get, get into some rules, man. What are we talking about today, Jason? All right. So this is one that, you know, we've talked about pinning. We've talked about blind. Those are two of my favorites. Uh, what's rapidly becoming a new favorite of mine, however, uh, is preferred enemy. And this is from, uh, yet again, Mechanicum. But uh, I've been trying out a new Archmagos. I never really got into Cybernetica. Like, and Big Stompy Robots is fun for a while, but it gets a little boring. You know, like the exact same robots game after game. Uh, I will admit, however, I am trying out a cybernetic list with nine Arl attacks, which might be entertaining. Uh, however, that's neither here nor there. I mean, that sounds insane and very, very mean, but yeah, yeah, that's neither here nor there, Jason. It sounds ridiculous is what it sounds like. And that's the kind of thing I like to play. But anywho, so uh, lately, especially in Zone Mortalis, I've really fallen in love with the uh, Archmagos Malagra because at first I was all about the Archmagos Reductor. And I still love them, still love Ordo Reductor, don't get me wrong, uh, because they are the only Magos with a native weapon skill 5 and strength 5, which is a big deal because with the Power Fist, it's the difference between strength 8 and strength 10. However, one big downside of the Archmagos Reductor, you cannot have both a Rad Furnace and a Machinator Array. However, the Archmagos Prime, you can have a Rad Furnace and a Machinator Array. Machinator Array, of course, being probably the best piece of war gear in the game. Now, uh, what you can do, and this comes out pretty terrifically, the Archmagos Malagra, so it gives you two things. It gives you preferred enemy characters. Gives you plus one weapon skill, plus one attack. So uh, with all the things that's, because uh, gosh knows, it's super easy to get like a 350 point Majos. But I'll typically use him with a Chain Fist, Paragon Blade, a Rad Furnace, Machinator Array, and a Photon Thruster. Because, you know, blind. And it's spectacular because, well, first off, let me give you a little context with the preferred enemy skill. So most people know about this one. It's pretty great. Uh, normally presented as preferred enemy X, where X identifies a specific type of foe. If it doesn't specify a type of foe, then everyone is preferred enemy. It's not very common. Uh, occasionally, like uh, Myrmidon Destructors, also Mechanicum, also terrific. They have preferred enemy everything. So, a unit that contains at least one model with a special rule, re-rolls, failed to hit into wound rolls of one if attacking its preferred enemy. Supplies to both shooting and close combat. So, big thing there. Only one model in the unit has to have preferred enemy. Now, an addendum to that, which came out with, uh, this was a 7th edition update in 40k that they restated when they came out with the FAQ for uh, the Age of Darkness stuff. So, under the heading Preferred Enemy on page 169, add the following at the end. 
A model with this rule makes an attack against a mixed unit which has one or more models to which their preferred enemy rule pertains but is not entirely composed of such models. It may still benefit from the effects of preferred enemy for all attacks made against that unit. So, uh, for example, a model with preferred enemy independent characters may reroll fail to hit into wounds against all of the models in a unit which has been joined by an independent character. Thus meaning, with an Archmagos Malagra, any squad you attack that has a squad sergeant, that has an independent character attached, that has an apothecary, anything like that, his entire unit gets preferred enemy infantry, or preferred enemy bikes, preferred enemy whatever you want, as long as it has a character in there. Rerolling those ones to wound and to hit. Now, where that comes into entertaining effect outside of that. So there are plenty of things with a preferred enemy, but one that's kind of special and near and dear to my heart, because I'm kind of sure it's an accident, but it'll be fun until it gets FAQ'd. And it's not this huge exploit, but it's fun specifically because uh, I give Forge World a hard time occasionally for having kind of a loyalist bias. Uh, if, uh, listeners out there, if you can prove me wrong, I would absolutely love it because this annoys me to no end. But I, while there are a lot of instances of loyalist characters inside um, Traitor Legions, so like, uh, let's see, Loken is a good one, a loyalist character inside the Sons of Horus Traitor Legion. Uh, you have, of course... Kirvalan. Uh, Kirvalan from the Iron Warriors. Clearly a better choice. Probably Clearly. the best choice. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Because what's... um, Golg? Oh, Golg is definitely a traitor. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, he's just uh, not a great choice. Oh, yeah, okay, that's fair. <laughs> Strong. Yeah, not a great choice. Uh, yeah. However, what's the... Because uh, Derek Rask from the Death Guard, he's the traitor character. Uh, Crisis Morturg, uh, yet another oh, yeah. loyalist. Amazing. Inside. Yeah, and he's terrific. And I really wish to be proven wrong on this, but I don't think there's a single instance of a traitor character from a loyalist legion. And that's super annoying. Like, even though there's totally precedence for it, like, how great would it be to have, like, I don't know, Torgan Khan from the White Scars? I mean, he got a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're you're right, Jason. I, you know, I think stopped seeing the loyalist characters from Trader Legions. I think after, I want to say, book three. Did book, did book four maybe have some? Because maybe maybe after that it was Jack Shields and, um, yeah. We oh, stopped. Indrid, uh, Indrid Har is another good one. Loyalist world leader. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, state of affairs. Who was the? Uh, and I wonder. Again, I'm not trying to kick a dead horse. I'll say. I'll say first off, Jesse. I'm sorry, but with Dark Angels wow, coming point. out in the new Black Book. <laughs> yeah. Again, I'm just going off of fact. I'm not trying to make a joke. But you do have a large component there. Agreed. Um, yeah. It would, I mean, that seems like the perfect one for it, though, right? Yeah. You think you and I mean, 
both some loyalist and some traitor characters out of that one. We do. I hope we see that. I hope we get rules for playing a completely traitor Dark Angels force. I mean, we should. That you know? would be pretty great. Yeah. I mean, I if they're coming out with dark mechanicums, they can at least come out with a traitor. Oh, uh, boy. I am. Yeah, definitely looking towards that. It's going to mm-hmm. be spectacular. Uh, however, uh, kind of getting a little off track, what I wanted to touch on and what I think is absolutely terrific. So uh, book six has a bunch of, well, I say has a bunch of, like it isn't, you know, a couple years old now. Uh, when it came out, had a bunch of new rights of war. So a bunch of, a uh, couple generic ones, couple um, for specifically uh, individual legions. And what was terrific is they had two, uh, Orphans of Betrayal and Outcast Sons for playing loyalist contingents of a main traitor army or traitor contingents from a mainly loyalist army, respectively. So, uh, Orphans of Betrayal uh, gives characters in the detachment must always issue and accept challenges. Uh, when in a challenge, such characters gain Feel No Pain 4+. plus. Not bad. Uh, also, all models in the detachment with Legionus Astartes have hatred against Space Marines with the same Legion-specific version of that rule. So, very fluffy, very nice. Uh, they're also immune to the fear special effect caused by their own Primarch. Uh, so, like, Iron Warriors are immune to Perturabo, Emperor's Children immune to Fulgrim, etc. Awesome, fluffy. Now, for Outcast Sons, traitor um, elements inside of a Loyalist Legion. Uh, their version of Brothers No More, characters in the detachment still issue and accept challenges against enemy models with Legionis Astartes. However, when fighting in a challenge, such characters have preferred enemy Legionis Astartes. Now, uh, on top of this, models in the detachment with the Astartes special rule re-roll sweeping advances against enemies with Legionis Astartes. Not the same one as them, just Legionis Astartes, so any other Space Marines. Now, why that's super funny is because a single character, say Squad Sergeant to Squad Sergeant, in a challenge, the Loyalist is going to get 4 plus Feel No Pain. The Traitor is going to get Preferred Enemy Astartes, not only in that challenge, but now their entire squad has preferred enemy Legionis Astartes against the entire Loyalist squad. And that's spectacular. And it just, I think it's like the one thing the traitors have that just so solidly outweighs the Loyalists. It kind of makes me happy. Yeah, preferred enemies is really such a, I mean, anytime you can pick up dice and re-roll them, um, I mean, you can just really turn a bad roll into a good one. You know, it really just kind of evens things out and, and, and makes it a much more powerful, effective unit. Very true. The obvious play here is see, it's like, if you're just going not so much for fluff, but you're going for like fun, potent rules usage. Uh, Blood Angels, the obvious, you know, kind of go-to for this because they wound on one better anyway. So you'd be wounding Astartes on three, re-rolling ones. 
which is pretty great. Uh, any of the mainly melee-focused legions would get a ton out of this. So Space Wolves would be great. White Scars would be pretty terrific, you know, with all sorts of, um, you know, Power Glaive action going on. Blood Angels would be great. Uh, so, Jason, you're saying that anyone can, anyone who has a Legionus Astartes um, army list can get access to preferred enemy by going to look for and choosing it's a right of war. Uh, yeah. Outcast sons, any okay. loyalist legion, uh, any of the nine loyalist legions, mm -hmm. you can take a traitor themed version of that loyalist legion. And then the, and then everyone in the legion has that it's not just characters. No, just characters. Oh, it's just characters. Okay, cool. Uh, characters in a challenge. Oh, but okay. Because of how preferred enemy works, they give that bonus to their squad as well because you only need a single model in the unit for preferred enemy to work for the entire unit. So even when you're when you tie combat in a challenge, it'll still carry over, or that preferred enemy will then help the squad that's currently battling the rest of the other guy's squad. Correct. Ooh. Yeah, that's that's you're right. That is interesting in terms of um to the rules as written and the wording of that. So so a character goes into a challenge, all they have to do is go into a challenge. And there uh -huh. doesn't doesn't matter if their well, I guess their initiative would have to be equal to or higher, maybe. It wouldn't well, really matter. It wouldn't really matter. Wouldn't because as soon as the assault phase, because as soon as the challenge happens, yeah, then... And then it goes off right before you even roll any dice. Then everybody's mm -hmm. getting preferred enemy. Wow, that's badass, dude. I don't, yeah, I don't think I've ever realized that. I guess you could argue that if the loyalist Astartes killed the traitor character in the challenge at an initiative step higher than the rest of the squad, then I guess you could argue that they would lose preferred enemy before. That's kind of what I was trying it. to figure out is sort of the timing, the timing mechanic of that. Well, that's yeah, really cool. the only thing I'd be worried about. So Jason, um, any other, any other way to get preferred enemy war gear, um, special rules, consoles or any consoles, any champion, any, anything there? I don't, I'm not as well versed with preferred enemy as I am blind and pinning. Okay. Nothing immediately springs to mind. I mean, there are special. There are a couple of special units, uh, like Alpha Legion Headhunters, uh, terror terror squads for yep. the Night Lords. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, other than that, no, I can't think of any consoles that give it. It I is a say, great room. Uh, it's pretty terrific to have it <laughs> with. Uh, <laughs> uh, my go-to tactic with the Archmagos Malagra now uh, Rad Grenades Rad Furnace you know all the fun little like weapons and upgrades and stuff I'll stick him with a unit of uh, oh gosh what are they the um, Engine Seer Auxilia so you can take these hilarious little five point servitors and the only reason they're there are to be ablative wounds for the Magos you know to shooting Mm -hmm. And each one of them has a flamer. So 
you either have to shoot him as he's coming towards you to make combat happen and, you know, plink off these ablative wounds, or if you charge him, I mean, every single servitor, up to eight of them, and the Majos himself has a flamer, which does, you know, D3 automatic hits on Overwatch, which you're at now negative one toughness to because of rad grenades, and also, if you have even a squad sergeant in there, now all of those flamers have preferred enemy. Wow. Brutal. It was pretty, pretty fun in ZM. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, speaking of ZM, um, I'd love to have somebody walk me through the new rules. What do you think? We should Maybe we should do that for our rules talk next time. Could we? Yeah. Because yeah. all- the... The changes aren't big, but they do make some pretty, I mean, they're not huge and overt. They're just small changes, but it's, uh, there's some pretty important ones. Yeah, let's do that. And I'll, I'll read up on them a little bit and then right, walk me through some it. of the, the nuances. All I right. Guess. Well, that's all I got. Yeah. Um, I guess uh, we'll go right into plugs. Dave, you got anything? Yeah, I. you know what? I'm going to plug the folks at Black Library um, who put on the Weekender because they did such a good job. Uh, it was amazing. Um, despite like one little sort of kerfluffle at the very beginning that really wasn't on them. Uh, but... Uh, the whole weekend was was really really fantastic and really well done. I I mean the access to the authors was like I mean unprecedented, right? Like I got to sit at a small table with Dan Abnett for an hour and just ask him questions and like <laughs> and he, he wasn't would, trying to run away, right? So and I mean. he didn't have like a minder with him. So I mean I remember back in like the days right 2006 games day baltimore if you were there dan was there and he had like this little black library minder that followed him around to make sure he wasn't like revealing state secrets you know or like giving away you know um i don't know but yeah it was just really cool to be just i mean the, i mean that guy is like he's like the architect of 40k right and just uh be able to hang out. And then the whole weekend was kind of like that. Just, you know, it was in this little boutique kind of uh, spa uh, like hotel, which was, which was really cool in Nottingham. Um, and uh, there was probably less than 150 people there. And it was, it was just really cool. I mean, it, it juxtaposed that to like an Adepticon or a Nova just just a lot of drinking and a lot of dice throwing and like, you know, just people having a great time, but, but on another level. Right. And this was, um, I don't know. It just felt, it felt, a, it felt a little more, it was different. It felt like a m- little more cerebral, you know? So it was cool. You guys should, you guys should go next time. Very cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Jason, you got anything to plug? Uh, not to my knowledge. All right. Uh, um, I guess I'll, as usual, I'll plug our Patreon. If you, uh, if 
feel like supporting us a little bit monetarily, you don't have to, but if you do feel so inclined, uh, go check out our Patreon. We've got links all over the place. There'll be a link on this episode too, but it uh, gives you, you know, access to a couple coupons for our, for our merch store. And then also early access to recordings like this. So uh, yeah. Other than that, uh, thank you all for listening and, uh, Guess this is us signing out. And telling Craig to fuck straight off. All right, go away, Craig. <laughs>